welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. I'm Ashley Betteridge. Francis Seymour is a Senior Fellow at the Centre for Global Development and a Senior Advisor to the David and Lucille Packard Foundation. She was formerly Director General of the Centre for International Forestry Research. Her keynote address to the 2014 Australasian Aid and International Development Policy Workshop looked at the contribution of forests to climate and development and discussed examples of what rich countries could do to contribute. Stephen, and good morning, everybody. Uh, look, it's a real pleasure to introduce Frances. I've been uh, lucky to be able to work with her in Indonesia some years ago and actually again now in both of our new capacities. So, as you know, Frances is now, um, as of quite recently, a senior fellow at the Centre for Global Development in Washington, and she's leading a, um, a, a new program uh, to develop a global consensus around the importance of forest conservation um, for climate change mitigation and also to advocate for results-based approaches to paying for uh, reducing emissions from deforestation. So that's what she's up to these days. But she's had a very varied and distinguished career um, across a number of organisations and, and subject areas um, with the Ford Foundation in Indonesia, um, with WWF, with the World Resources Institute, but most notably from my perspective, the Centre for International Forestry Research in uh, Bogor in Indonesia. So Francis led C4 for six years from 2006, and she was appointed to the role um, at a, a very opportune time. So 2006 was the year when the Stern Review of the economics of climate change was released. And it was the Stern Review that really turned forest conservation uh, from an environment issue um, into a climate change issue. Um, now, Francis really seized that opportunity. She placed C4 at the centre of global conversations about what came to be known as RED, reducing emissions from deforestation and uh, forest degradation. And, and Francis and C4 played a leading role in those discussions over the, fo- the following six years and, and up to uh, today. Um, so she really made the most of that opportunity and hugely enhanced the, uh, the, the reputation uh, um, and the influence of C4 in that process. Now, one specific thing that Francis did was to, uh, to run something called Forest Day at the annual climate change conferences, the UN climate change conferences, now, these things can be quite gloomy in technical affairs, as I suspect a number of you would know from personal experience. Forest Day was always a real bright spot, and Frances herself was always quite the rock star when she spoke at Forest Day, so um, I'm very pleased that we have an opportunity to hear her perform today. Thank you, Robin, for that uh, introduction. That was far too generous. Um, I'm extremely happy to be here. Um, As many of you may have seen on the internet this morning, the city of Washington is shut down today in a snowstorm, so I'm not missing anything professionally there. Uh, But I am missing something personal. Um, I want to wish everyone a happy Valentine's Day. And uh, Stephen, I want you to know that in addition to drinks tonight, I'm expecting compensatory flowers and chocolate. So, uh, my topic today, Forest for Climate and Development. What can rich countries do? And I will make it my business uh, in the next little bit to advance the following propositions. That forests are important for both development and climate change. That reducing deforestation is possible, but it requires tough changes in the domestic political economy of forest countries. And that results-based finance and demand-side policies from rich countries are promising approaches to support constituencies for change in forest countries. Now, happily, the minister in her address yesterday didn't mention any of these things, so there's no chance for duplication. (laughs) Okay, first of all, uh, forests are important for development. We heard a lot yesterday about the Millennium Development Goals, and those are signaled over to the right side. I just want to flash all the different ways that forests contribute to development through uh, contributions to income, to food, to energy, to health, to safety. I'm just going to ask you to take my word for it, but give you a few highlights to to give you a sense of what I'm talking about. (coughs) Income from forests. Many of the world's uh, rural poor still depend significantly on forest-based sources of income. Um, You see, the informal logging sector is still very important in many places. 
Non-timber forest products, often particularly important for women who take the lead in gathering, processing, and selling those products. <coughs> Fuel wood and charcoal, uh, very important in sub-Saharan Africa. If you're wondering why those bags of charcoal have that strange muffin top you know, apparatus, it's because the bags of charcoal are taxed by the bag. So you have an incentive to cram as much into your bag as you can. Uh, and not least, bushmeat, important not only for local consumption. A C4 study estimated that up to 80% of fats and proteins in rural diets in the Congo Basin came from bushmeat, but also important, important for sale. So what's the 21% figure? That is the magic number that comes out of a huge study that C4 did, the Poverty and Environment Network study, that exploited a whole generation of graduate students to go out and collect household data from more than 8,000 households in 26 countries about how much of their income over the course of a year came from wild products gathered from the forest. And on average, that number was 21%. That number is significant for at least two reasons. One is that it's about commensurate with the income from agricultural crops, so it's that important. Second reason is that almost none of this income gets captured in national accounts. So it is an invisible hidden harvest that no one pays attention to in, in national capitals. So when a forest is converted to another use, it may well provide alternative sources of income, but you've got to subtract out this amount before you know whether it's net positive or negative. <coughs> Secondly, and perhaps more important but less appreciated, is the role of forests in providing ecosystem services that underpin broader development, and particularly agriculture. Um, forests are a source of resilience, particularly in the face of the climate change that's already in train. Um, the upper uh, left-hand corner for you is showing, you know, forest burning. Um, you all saw in the newspaper the haze that covered Singapore back in June. Well, a lot of that, it's not only intentional burning, but it's forests that are more vulnerable to wildfires after they have been disturbed. Um, disturbed forests, more vulnerable to landslides, uh, flash flooding, all those kinds of, of impacts that um, forests can help protect against. Pollination. Um, research showing that agricultural crops grown closer to forest edges have higher yields because of the pollination services from the bees, the bats, the birds. Probably most important is the hydrological services, the maintaining the quality and quantity of, of water flow um, to downstream uses, both drinking water and irrigation. Interesting study came out last year. Um, some people affiliated with Conservation International did the hard work of compiling a database of all the dams across the tropics and doing the spatial analysis of the land cover in those watersheds and showed that even though cloud forests cover only 4% of the watersheds, they're responsible for 21% of the surface water yield that fills the reservoirs. Now actually, if you throw out one outlier data point, it goes up to about 50%, but then I would lose the nice symmetry between the previous slide. <laughs> so anyway, the point is, is that the, the forest-based ecosystem services are also significant. So again, when you convert a forest to another use, you need to subtract out um, those losses. So at the end of the day, what's the net impact of deforestation on development? Well, like so many things in life, it depends. Several years ago, um, Ken Chumas at the World Bank published this book at Loggerheads that reviewed all the evidence of what happens um, in the, the trade-off between deforestation and poverty. And of course, he found that in some places, deforestation led to a reduction in poverty. In some places, deforestation led to uh, an increase in poverty. And it all depended on things like um, access to markets, who benefited, the uh, uh, suitability of the soil, alternative use, you know, all those things. It's certainly true that tens of thousands of families in places like Sumatra are now able to send their kids to college for the first time because they're getting income from growing oil palm or, or other crops that, that replace forests. So there's definitely situations where deforestation uh, leads to development. But as this uh, recent publication from the Forest People's Program shows, it can also have rather drastic negative consequences for local communities when that forest conversion takes place in more of a land-grabbing situation where local and indigenous rights are not respected, local people who've been depending on those forests for livelihoods are pushed aside, often leading to conflict, often violent, and uh, people are left much worse off. So, you know, it depends, and certainly a lot of forest conversion that's taking place now is unplanned and not done in such a way as to provide development benefits. Now, so I hope I've convinced you that forests are important to the Now let's switch to the importance of forests to climate stability. So 
These were the important numbers released in the last round of IPCC uh, assessment reports about you know, how much different sources contribute to global climate emissions. And this one was released uh, several years ago was famously the one that showed that the slice uh, represented by forest-related emissions was greater than the slice represented by all of global transport emissions. And in the Stern review that uh, was just referenced by Robin, you know, it made the point that if you take the emissions from all the planes, trains, automobiles combined around the world, you don't get up to the same amount of emissions as from, from forests. Now we're going to be getting some updated numbers uh, later this year when the next IPCC uh, assessment report comes out. And don't assume that the problem is being solved when you see the slice to forestry getting smaller. It's only because the slice from forests is rising more slowly than the denominator. So uh, watch that space. And maybe of relevance to this conference in particular, despite decades of development assistance for tropical forest protection and management, deforestation increased by more than 2,000 square kilometers per year over the period 2000 to 2012. And this is based on some new data published in Science Magazine uh, about two months ago by Matt Hansen that really gives a, a more rigorous basis for these deforestation numbers. So deforestation continues pretty much throughout the tropics with the exception of, of one country, which I'll talk about in a moment. This gives you a sense of what this looks like on the ground. The green is red, the green is forest, the red is deforestation. This is an area around Sumatra, and it shows the progress of this deforestation over the course of the 12 years. You know, let me look at it again so that you can internalize what this, uh, what this looks like. It's particularly important because these are where the peat swamp forests are, so some of the most emissions-intensive landscapes in the world. But while reducing deforestation is tough, it is not impossible. So we know and have pretty good evidence that conversion to agriculture, and mostly conversion to commercial scale <coughs> agriculture rather than subsistence, and often illegally converted uh, forest, is what drives deforestation. Um, this was a study that uh, was associated with some C4 science, scientists um, released two years ago, showing that you know, the preponderance, the two bottom gray bars are, are agriculture as a driver of deforestation. And I would say this is probably an underestimate of the current situation in terms of the proportion attributable to commercial forests because that's been increasing towards the latter part of the period. Um, but you can see uh, agriculture is definitely the big part of the story. And you can imagine, you know, in all countries, uh, including rich countries, the agriculture lobby is really strong. So it's hard for governments to go against uh, agricultural interests in converting forests to other uses. This is, a, a, again, a sense of the reality on the ground. This is a photograph I took out of a window of a little airplane uh, looking down in central Kalimantan of an oil palm plantation being established. And you can see, you know, being carved right out of the edge of a very intact This is the results from a meta-analysis being conducted by a CGD colleague of mine, Jonah Bush, um, and Alifi Ferretti who have taken all of the econometric studies they can find about um, the association between deforestation and a whole bunch of other variables. I don't expect you to absorb all of this, but basically the um, different drivers are arrayed from top to bottom of those that are associated with the least deforestation at the top and the most deforestation at the bottom. So some interesting results is that some of the things most uh, associated with protecting forests include, not surprisingly, protected areas, but maybe surprisingly, logging. That having logging activity actually helps maintain forests as forests. But importantly, community forestry and indigenous presence are very important there, suggesting that what we always kind of thought, that the local level management was important. But look down at the bottom. What are the things that are most uh, associated with deforestation? Things related to agriculture. And in particular, coming in at first place is the driver of deforestation, agricultural prices. Now, this is where the Brazil example uh, comes in handy. I mentioned that there was one country where deforestation rates are declining and de declining dramatically, and that is Brazil. Um, you can see, and you all remember, those of you who are old enough, um, that you know, the deforestation was the, the, the big uh, issue was in the Amazon, the, the Amazon forests were burning. Well, oh, you can see over the last 10 years, there's been an incredible decrease in the deforestation rate in Brazil. Well, how did they do that? 
website. Here you can see the deforestation rate overlaid by the price indices for soy and for beef, which widely acknowledged to be the biggest agricultural drivers of deforestation in Brazil. And when the deforestation first started going down, everybody said, oh well, that's only because the beef and soy prices are going down. And as soon as those prices you know, tick up again, deforestation is going to go up again. But look, Brazil was able to decouple the decreasing deforestation rate from the moderation in agricultural prices. How did they do that? Well, the lessons from Brazil seem to suggest that the many things that you can do to decrease deforestation is one, again, not surprisingly, is actually increase the proportion of the forest area that's under some degree of formal protection. So they actually expanded the protected area network of various kinds. Second, and probably politically important, is increasing the transparency of land cover change. In Brazil, you had an interesting situation where both the government and civil society were about 20 years ahead of everybody else in getting satellite imagery analysis to be able to see in near real time where deforestation was taking place. And that enabled civil society to target their advocacy towards deforestation events, but also, in getting to the third point, enabled the government to target law enforcement efforts, you know, really uh, where deforestation events were happening. And the government signaled that it was serious about this by doing things like um, confiscating an entire herd of cattle and auctioning it off. And that's the kind of impact on a, on a commercial interest that, that gets their attention. Um, also, uh, what Brazil did is uh, remove some of the perverse subsidies that made access to credit contingent on deforestation, um, and so getting rid of the, the, the perverse incentives. But also, but importantly, recognizing and strengthening the indigenous management over forests. And as you may know, Brazil has um, indigenous reserves. And there are amazing maps that show how the deforestation frontier comes right up to the edge of the reserve and then stops. So um, empowering those customary management systems seems to be to be learn. But when you think about it, all of these things are politically difficult to do. You know, law enforcement against uh, you know, uh, commercial agricultural interests. Um, depending on the, the, the political situation, recognizing uh, the rights of indigenous peoples vis-a-vis -vis, you know, state claims or other claims, difficult. So the question uh, still remains, what was it that got Brazil behind all of these measures? And I think um, the jury is still out on that and uh, some research at CGD that we are commissioning. So one proposition is that results-based finance might be one instrument to help uh, generate political will and governments to take on some of these challenges. Many of you in the room know, but many of you don't, that back at the time of the Stern Review that um, Robin mentioned in his introduction, the world, climate and forest world, embarked on a journey uh, that goes under the label RED, reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. <coughs> And it was mainly centered in the UNFCCC climate negotiations. Um, and the, the whole RED project really got off the ground in 2007 at the Conference of the Parties that was held in Bali. And the idea of RED is that industrialized countries would mobilize large sources of funds to pay forest countries to compensate them for their uh, opportunity costs in not sacrificing their forests for uh, development. And so the idea is that you know, in, in once the globe came together in a global climate agreement with a compliance market for a sort of cap and trade on emissions, this would liberate a huge amount of funds to compensate the forest countries for protecting their forests and reducing emissions, and that this would be a global win-win because these emission reductions would be cheaper than the industrial emission uh, reductions that were possible in the rich countries. For those of us who lived in forestry world, this was a great time. Um, and uh, Robin mentioned the uh, forest days that we used to put on at, at the cops, and this is uh, the one in Mexico where uh, Calderon, the president of, of, of Mexico uh, in Cancun, was literally pounding the pulpit, talking about the underlying drivers of deforestation, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. <laughs> Head of state, so excited about my, my issue. Um, that, the negotiating process has continued, and in fact, I think it's widely agreed that the negotiations over RED, you know, how forests fit in the climate agenda, have been by far the most productive of the various uh, strands of negotiation in the climate arena because it is kind of a win-win. And in fact, as of Warsaw in uh, December of last year, Basically, the negotiators wrapped up the rule book on red. There's basically agreement on you know, how you set a baseline, how you measure, how you deal with safeguards, just you know, all of that stuff. 
So the, the rule book is there. In the meantime, there's been a series of, of other events and, and programs developed to support the Red Agenda. And I put in little fine print right here, the launch of the Australian Global Forest and Climate Initiative. Dear to my heart, because that was the first visit um, that I had a chance to make to Australia for a high-level panel meeting that took place in Sydney in July of 2007. And few people remember that it was actually the government of Australia that was first out of the box making a significant $200 million uh, commitment to this red agenda. Uh, we can talk about what happened to that. Subsequently, um, there were many programs to support uh, countries to get ready for red and put into place monitoring systems and all that. Forest Investment Program at the World Bank, part of the climate funds that Robin talked about in his session um, yesterday morning, uh, to help you know, with policy change. And then most recently, conclusion of the rule book of something called the Forest Carbon Fund um, at the World Bank that, that um, is, is designed to finance these efforts. However, another fine print is here in the middle, and you see that I've, I've noted it with a little zigzaggy line. Um, in case you missed the email, uh, the negotiations in Copenhagen failed to come up with a global agreement in 2009. And so all of that finance that was supposed to come raining down on the red agenda to um, promote this for payment for performance reductions in deforestation did not materialize. And there is little prospect that it will materialize anytime in the near future. As a result, all of the money to support what programs continue, not all, but most of it, is coming from aid budgets. And so that's why it's uh, particularly relevant to this conference. And in fact, my colleague Errol Angelson at uh, the University of Life Sciences in Norway uh, coined the term the aidification of red. And I don't think he means it as a compliment. Um, so this, the whole red idea is still very much in currency. Um, this is a graph, uh, again, from my colleague Jonas, uh, one of his publications, uh, that appeared in the high-level panel of eminent persons uh, report related to the successors to the Millennium Development Goals. And basically what it shows is that this is the emissions trajectories from uh, forests without red, and these are different uh, ways to reduce deforestation depending on how you invest the money across countries and, 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 and regions. But you can basically see, you know, depending, with this model and based on a lot of assumptions, you can get a dramatic decrease in emissions um, for not a whole lot of money. Now, uh, the funding that has been put in place, um, I've tried to summarize in this, this graph, and I just want you to notice a few things about it. Um, first of all, if you sort of add up all of the, the bars and columns, it you know, comes up a little bit short of $4 billion, which sounds like a lot of money, but actually the lowest estimates of the amount that we need to get from here to 2020 are you know, more on the order of 12 or more. So we're, we're quite far, far short of, of what would be needed to actually incentivize um, reductions in deforestation. Another thing to note is that of the funds that have been allocated, very few of them have actually been dispersed. You don't see a lot of pink bars over there on, on the left of the various mechanisms. The last thing I want you to note is that some of the biggest uh, bars are these ones for the Amazon Fund in Brazil, for the Norwegian bilateral agreement in Indonesia, and for the Norwegian partnership in Guyana. These are essentially the only three uh, large-scale experiments that we have on the payment for performance mechanism in that Norway stepped forward at Bali Cup, um, promised what have been come to known as the rainforest billions, and put a billion dollars on the table for Brazil, a billion dollars on the table for Indonesia, and about a quarter of a billion on the table for Guyana, which proportionately is actually much bigger uh, in their economy, to see if we can make this work. Issue is that with the exception of Guyana, billion dollars, sounds like a lot of money, to get your attention and headline. In the Brazilian and Indonesian economies, it's actually nothing. So uh, we want to learn from these experiences, but keeping in mind that a billion dollars is actually small compared to um, what is needed to, to make a difference. So I uh, left C4 and went to Washington and um, washed up on the door of the Center for Global Development. Come to find out that everybody in Red World had been busily developing this whole theory and practice about payment for performance and you know, how do you set the baselines and the indicators to incentivize uh, reductions in deforestation for climate agenda. Turns out that there's this whole other industry within aid world uh, centered at the Center for Global Development that had been promoting about the same timeline, starting in about 2006, this concept of cash on delivery aid. 
And the cash on delivery aid model is saying, look, let's dispense with some of the old style of, of, of development assistance and instead make a deal as a transaction with the government uh, of a developing country and agree on what the objective is. Are we trying to educate girls? Are we trying to vaccinate children? Agree what the metric of performance is and how much it's worth to the donor. And then the donor steps back on a completely hands-off approach, lets the government get on with achieving that goal, however they do it, and then at the end of the period, you measure the, the impact with an independently verified uh, mechanism, and then payment is made for performance. Sounds a lot like rent, you know? It was really uh, interesting that these two schools of thought have developed almost completely independently, so for me, it's been intellectually interesting to see you know, where there are some, some areas of, of, of cross-learning. But the question that you're asking is, but does it work? And the answer to that question is we don't really know yet because it's in the very earliest stages of being tried in just a few places. So I would say to you, a very fertile uh, area for research. But I think what it does do is build on what we heard from Roger in his um, address yesterday, is address this problem of the perverse um, distortions that come in when development assistance is based on donor systems as opposed to recipient country systems. Cash on delivery aid is sort of the, that would be the model of relying on the, uh, the forest, the, the, the developing country system and in the particular case of forest. So C4 has done a little bit of research on what is it that makes red work. And I won't get into the details of this study, but it's an interesting attempt to pry out some of the variables that are associated with success in red defined as sort of transformational policy reform. And the early indications from a rather small data set you know, of 12 countries are that you know, if a country has already initiated change, that is, is before the, the, the RED program comes into place, that's associated with success, and that national ownership of the agenda and coalitions in support of that agenda um, are also associated with success in the policy range. Notably, this study did not include payment for performance as one of the variables. So one of the things we're going to do in the coming months is to try to update this uh, study with attention to Guyana, which is a case that they didn't include, and payment for performance as a variable. Now, um, let's look at this particular cases that we do have in the red space. So you've seen this, this graph before of the, uh, the decrease in the deforestation rate in the Brazilian Amazon. To what extent can the Norwegian agreement take credit for helping precipitate this decline? Well, clearly the decline was already well underway before the Norwegian agreement was there. On the other hand, it had started to tick back up again before the agreement, so maybe you could take credit for keeping, you know, helping it head back down again. But uh, again, I think the jury is still out about whether and how the Norwegian agreement consolidated existing commitments, uh, helped prevent a reversal, we don't know. Indonesia case is uh, even more problematic in that we haven't seen the decline in deforestation rate yet. And so what we have is an interesting timeline. On the right-hand side, what I've labeled government of Indonesia actions, and some, you know, whoops, sorry, starting back from 2007, when government uh, in Indonesia hosted that Bali conference of the party and made some noises about um, being with the, you know, wanting to be a global leader on climate change, to President Yudhoyono announcing at the Pittsburgh, sorry, the Pittsburgh G20 summit that he was going to be the first head of state to voluntarily commit to significant emissions reductions, and then that followed with the letter of intent with Norway in 2010 when they put a billion dollars on the table. Since then, a number of policy steps have been taken. You've probably heard of the moratorium on new concessions that was put into place, unprecedented release of forest-related information on a map associated with that moratorium, more recently the establishment of a new agency for RED, um, and many other, other things. The question is, how significant are those, and to what extent are they attributable to the agreement with Norway? Because, of course, there are a lot of other things going on. You know, you had the UNFCC negotiations, you have the Stern Review making the case for the economics of forests and climate change. Um, you had many private sector commitments announced that I'll talk about a little bit more um, in a moment. And also, you know, competition with Brazil. You know, when the Brazil announcement was announced, there maybe was a little, you know, sense of, uh, well, maybe we can do that too in, in Indonesia. So again, jury's still out on the, on the impact. In my own view, um, one of the most important attributes of 
read and cash on delivery aid more generally is the political framing of the relationship between the donor and the recipient. And my CGD colleague, Bill Savadoff, who's uh, along with Nancy Burtzall, who've been writing on CODA, have come to this, the same conclusion in other sectors, that the framing is what it's all about. Many of you recognize this image as the one from back in 1998, when there was a previous letter of intent that included forest-related conditionality. Um, that was in the context of the Asian financial crisis, when in a big hurry, the IMF and the World Bank cobbled together a letter of intent that had many provisions, including one that was a moratorium on further uh, conversion of forests to, to plantation crops. And this was the image of President Suharto signing that letter of intent with Michelle Kandasu, then the head of the IMF, standing beside him with arms crossed, uh, looking over his shoulder. Now, um, those of us in the West aren't sensitive to this kind of image, but Indonesians found it profoundly humiliating. And I would say that there are resentments towards the World Bank and the IMF that persist to this day as a result of this image. Uh, compare the optics of this image, which was the Oslo signing of the 2010 letter of intent. You have the two heads of state standing side by side as equals, the two ministers of foreign affairs sitting side by side, signing a transaction that's really, you know, uh, an equal partnership. And I think the Norwegians have bent over backwards to try to communicate that difference in this agreement, that it's not traditional donor-recipient, conditional, condescending, paternalist aid, but rather a transaction among equals um, that, that makes a big difference. But perhaps that's something we can, we can talk about. So um, I'm running out of time, so I'm just going to quickly say there's another strain of work going on that's been very important, um, particularly in Indonesia, but also globally, on so-called demand-side strategies for reducing deforestation. Globally traded commodities are a key driver of deforestation. You can see here's the map of Indonesia's uh, deforestation rate creeping up. And here, from a similar time frame over on the right-hand side of the graph, the area planted to uh, oil palm. Not a coincidence that those two things um, are related. A lot of that is exported. Uh, here's an image from a Chatham House report showing the global flows of palm oil from Southeast Asia to various markets. Some, you know, upwards of 80% exported. So a lot of deforestation is embodied in uh, exports to other countries. And some of those are actually uh, enhanced and subsidized by perverse policies in consumer countries. Here I highlight, highlight uh, what the EU's been up to which ironically, in the name of you know, climate-friendly renewable fuel standards, have increased their import of palm oil. You see the uh, yellow slice on this, uh, these pie charts. Um, growing from 2006 to 2012 is the proportion of palm oil being used for biodiesel. And you know, it's even more to substitute, substitute for the domestically grown oil crops in Europe that are now being pulled into people's gas tanks. So it's, it's really a perverse situation. So, what are the sort of demand-side policies that consumer country governments can do? Again, this is about what rich countries can do. Well, first of all, remove the subsidies for unsustainable biofuels, and that applies to the U.S. as well, which um, under its renewable fuel standard has been uh, subsidizing this. Enforce domestic legislation to control illegally produced commodities. So in the U.S., it's the Lacey Act. I know in Australia there's similar legislation. Green government procurement standards. The UK has committed to only importing in its uh, government procurement certified sustainable palm oil. Incorporate forest protection provisions into trade agreements and investment decisions. You may have heard there's a kerfuffle uh, recently about the Trans-Pacific Partnership that the environment chapter, which was leaked, uh, is uh, particularly weak. And finally, support voluntary private sector commitments to responsible sourcing. A part of the Brazil story I didn't mention before was that there was a voluntary moratorium that the soy industry put on uh, deforestation because they were feeling pressure in their export markets. So what's going on here? This is an image uh, that took place night before last at the Center for Global Development. Um, I wasn't there, but my friend sent me this grainy photograph from his cell phone of Paul Coleman winning CGD's 2014 Commitment to Development Award. And this is given to a person or organization in a rich country that does something important to promote development in the South. This year's award went to Paul Coleman, the CEO of Unilever, because he has exercised leadership in his own company, in the Consumer Goods Forum, in something called the Tropical, Alliance, the Tropical Forest Alliance to get deforestation out of the country company's supply chain. And most recently, he helped broker a deal with Wilmar 
which controls 45% of the world's trade in palm oil, to get them to commit to a no deforestation, no peat conversion, no social uh, exploitation of people, not only in its own narrow supply chain, but all of the supply, third-party suppliers that it works with. This is huge. Now, I, I want to just quickly show that this is a, 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 a something that's been catalyzed by um, consumers and NGOs on the one hand getting consumer-facing manufacturers and retailers like Nestle, Unilever, make commitments, who in turn put pressure on suppliers, including some of the big bad guys, you know, Asia Pulp and Paper, uh, Wilmar, to make their commitments to no deforestation, which in turn, I hope, will lead to the corporations becoming a constituency to put pressure on governments that can be complementary to incentives from red to get this done. Now, politics in poorest countries, difficult. You've got a lot of people making a lot of money from the, the commodities, but you've also got constituencies for environmental sustainability, for indigenous rights, for governance reform that might be able to add up to something that can make a difference. Politics in donor countries. You got the people who love baby animals. There are a lot of them, and they write checks. Um, you've got uh, the consumer-facing uh, retailers who want, don't want to be associated with deforestation, so presumably they want their governments to be part of the solution. But you've also got a kind of strange bedfellows situation where the commodity, the commodity suppliers or products uh, uh, suppliers who uh, may compete with illegally produced um, goods are in favor of such things as the Lacey Act and the, the Illegal Logging uh, Pro Prohibition Act here in Australia. So why now? Uh, we've got the technology to do it. Now this satellite imagery is available to everybody for accurate assessment of deforestation on an annual basis from Landsat and real-time monitoring from MODIS so that we can actually target law enforcement. We need a bridge to the finance to 2020. Mindful of elections, not least in Indonesia, that will be taking place in the meantime. We need to incentivize new leaders to stick with the RED program. We've got a global calendar that provides a window of opportunity. We've got the New York Climate Summit in September. We've got the Lima uh, Conference of the Parties. We've got a G20 meeting here in Brisbane. We've got the Paris negotiations. We've got the revision of the, the Millennium Development Goals. All those need to be used for this agenda. And finally, if you can watch this one more time and tell me that it's this urgent, yeah, I'll leave it with you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Francis. That was an incredibly comprehensive and clear presentation. I'm sure it will have raised a lot of questions in people's minds. Um, what we might do, we have about um, 14 minutes at this point for questions. Um, so as usual, we'll take them in groups of about three. Um, so please, uh, now can you please introduce yourselves um, before you ask your question, make a comment. There's one person up here. Peter Coventry from Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. The decoupling of Brazilian logging is quite an interesting case study. Um, have you investigated um, the opportunity? Because in Brazil we saw a rise and then a fall, and over that time you had the ending of the Cardoso government, the beginning of the Silva government, and incredible economic growth. So if I was investing my dollar as a purely rapacious person, I might move out of Kaplan soy and invested elsewhere. I'm just wondering if you've done any analysis around that because the drivers are often commercial and if you invest elsewhere, you do, which means later on they might return back to clearing land. All right, thanks, Peter. Uh, yeah. uh, my name is Patrick Anderson. I'm a visiting fellow uh, with the Centre for Asia Pacific. I also work with the Forest Students Program. <clears throat> in the 90s, I ran Greenpeace International Forest Program and developed a campaign with Brazilian partners, including a coalition of 80 Brazilian groups, to take on the mahogany logging industry, leading to a moratorium on mahogany logging, subsequently a campaign in the markets on soy, and leading to a moratorium on the expansion of the soy industry into forest areas. Uh, we also worked on a campaign on the cattle industry, leading again to some uh, stock of expansion through market-based pressure. So I think this, obviously, in Francis's um, charter, are many things that governments do. I mean, sort of a very good list from Brazil of government actions. But I think it is also useful to look 
at how uh, demand side has uh, created kind of pressure that also changes industry practice. And as Francis's last slideshow, hopefully also leads to, uh, to changing government policy. Thank you. Okay, we'll take that as a comment unless Francis chooses to respond. So, um, further questions? Uh, yes, just here. Um, Simon from the Department of the Environment. Um, to my knowledge, one of the major um, factors which got read um, up and running was the uh, idea that we tap into the emissions trading market. Um, there seems to be obviously still problems with that. It's not, uh, not developing as quickly as many people expected. Do you think red, um, considering red, we should start to to um, do away with this sort of things? Just to thinking about uh, offsets from corporations and uh, aidification, or do you think we should still try and uh, look at that, look at that as a sort of end goal, taking into that business training? Okay, um, thank you. These are great questions. Um, the narrow answer to your question is no, uh, we haven't done the analysis about whether it was the Brazil story was you know, driven by more attractive investment opportunities um, rather than, than uh, other things. I think Patrick's comment speaks to this a, a little bit. Um, and I, I, I agree that changing economic conditions, I mean, there are, there are some studies about how you know, changes in exchange rates, for example, and just macroeconomic conditions can make a big difference in terms of the, the relative profit, profitability um, of the, the investments in agriculture, which are you know, the, the main driver. I guess my comment would be that whatever um, uh, confluence of economic conditions and advocacy you know, campaigns um, came together, they've now institutionalized um, both policies and norms that I think would be relatively harder to reverse. And so I think what we, we want to look for is try, as we think about transferring that model to other countries, is bringing together that sort of bundle of signals from, from various sources that can help institutionalize um, state capacity to you know, enforce the law, for example, or policies that do recognize um, indigenous rights that can help fend off what may come later as an uptick in increased uh, pressure on the forest. Um, the emissions trading one is a, is a tough one because I think um, you would have to be very optimistic to think that we could create you know, a functional uh, carbon market that includes included forests on a global scale anytime soon. And so my comment would be that uh, in the near term, and since we wouldn't, couldn't expect to have such a market until 2020 anyway, what we need to focus on now is finance, probably from aid budgets, although there are other um, proposals around about how to generate revenue to enable funds to be made available on a payment for performance basis and understand that the lessons learned from that experience can inform future emissions trading markets and certainly experiments like the one you may be familiar with. The state of California in my country is setting up its own state level emissions trading program and is considering including international forest offsets in that program. So all those will provide a basis of learning that can inform potentially a future emissions trading market, but you don't have to take a position on whether that's a good idea or not to be in favor of performance-based finance now. Okay. Um, yes, just here. Uh, thank you. My name is Tim Brown. I'm with DECA, and I was um, Australia's Red Negotiator, so I'm reasonably familiar with some of these topics. Um, I had, uh, if you could give me two quick questions. One of the observations I made um, from the slides that you put up was with the decoupling of Brazil's um, relationship between the agricultural commodity prices and the deforestation rate. When it started to go back up again, you know, only around about 2007, um, that was when the commodity prices started to go back up again, but that was also the point where the agreement came in with, with Norway, and, and I think that potentially there is an interesting relationship between those, between those two points, and I'm wondering if that's the sort of thing that donor countries can be thinking about in terms of striking at the most opportune moment in order to incentivise change politi excuse me, particularly politically. Um, but my question is to follow on from Simon's actually, um, and it's a big one. In terms of finding finance and results-based payments, where do you think we should be looking if we're not looking within aid budgets? Okay. Um, yeah. John Dixon from the Australian Centre of International Agricultural Research. I like very much the presentation. And you drew out the, uh, 
the strong connection between agriculture and deforestation. And that's agriculture, of course, in the sense of expansion of land principally. And I think there's a quite a mixed evidence uh, bag around the connection between intensification of agriculture as, a, as opposed to expansion of agriculture. And I think there's, that, that can cut both ways if one intensifies sustainably the agricultural land, one needs this less pressure to move into forest. Conversely, as one intensifies agriculture, it, it, it boosts the uh, rate of return to uh, land use in agriculture. And this has been, it has been and is still being debated. However, I wanted to step beyond the thought that it's agriculture versus forest and to wonder about your opinion about the growing movement particularly in Africa, towards evergreen agriculture that combines trees and crops in a, in a positive way, and that in turn has been rolled towards the climate-smart agriculture movement, which is now strongly supported both by UN and by World Bank, and will be launched in this September. So I wonder whether you see that as another positive fact move that will help with deforestation and emissions. Okay, thank you. And one further question for this round, uh, just here. Yep. Thank you. Uh, my name is Sifra Rajanshan, a PhD candidate at the Cross School here at JU. Uh, thank you, Francis. Uh, you mentioned briefly uh, something uh, relates to uh, political situation or political dynamics that uh, influence right uh, development in many developing countries. Uh, I'm just uh, trying to uh, ask you whether you can uh, elaborate further because I believe uh, uh, countries like Brazil and Indonesia have embraced uh, a wider decentralized government system. And I'm just wondering whether you can uh, see uh, whether those local governments have different views uh, when it comes to red uh, with the uh, national governments and of course international uh, countries. Okay, Francis. Okay. Um, so, on uh, where the results-based uh, finance has come from, let me challenge you a little bit to, to, to not set aside the aid budget because I think that there is potential for shifting more of the current finance available for RED into a performance basis. And uh, I should say that um, in, in addition to the work that I'm, I'm doing at TGD, we're convening later this year a working group to try to understand why is it that donors have been so reluctant to put uh, their aid dollars behind performance-based instruments. Because really, you've got Norway way out in front by themselves, a more modest red early movers program from the Germans, and that's about it. So why isn't DFID, for example, um, putting its significant funds behind payment for performance and, and adding more um, to the weight of the money that's, that's uh, as Pajero in the National Red Agency in, in Indonesia put it, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that incentivizes um, better use of the funds that have this program for readiness activities or, or um, the intermediate policy reform. Beyond aid budgets, you know, there are a lot of ideas in play. Um, I know there's been some talk about trying to leverage uh, capital markets in some of the ways that have been done in the health field, you know, through uh, advanced market commitments and that sort of thing. So all of those are, are on the table and up for discussion. But I think the, the low-hanging fruit now would be to move some of the already allocated funds um, for red in the aid budgets into more of a performance uh, basis. Um, John Nixon, uh, intensification, absolutely. I mean, one of the early most popular C4 papers was the Kimowitz and Angelson paper showing that, as you suggested, intensification can actually accelerate deforestation under the right uh, uh, combination of circumstances. Because if you're making more money doing it, you'll want to uh, deforest even, even more quickly. So those who say all we have to do is intensify to take pressure off the forest you know, are, are missing the story. Um, I'm certainly all in favor of evergreen agriculture and climate-smart agriculture and all those other ways to try to um, look for win-win solutions on the landscape. But let's be clear, none of that will stop deforestation as long as it's profitable to do so and you can get away with it you know, in the impunity of doing it illegally. So at the end of the day, um, and this is why the demand-side approaches only are not sufficient, 
At the end of the day, you need rule of law, you need you know, a societal consensus on what land is going to be left as forest, and you know, the, the capacity to um, back up local communities or you know, enforce the law against uh, third parties coming into illegally deforest. Because even if you know, that slide I showed with the three bands of the sort of scrubland, the new wall plantation in the forest, even if every single you know, company in the consumer goods forum you know, in, in their supply chain, ADP, Golden Agri Resources, were to say, we're not going to deforest anymore, there's nothing to stop some other bad actor from coming in and cutting it down behind them, as long as you don't have it back into the state uh, behind it. So you really got to have um, the, the vote man. Um, Fijian, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about the subnational level. That's something I didn't have time to do in my um, presentation. And certainly, um, I would argue that one of the huge mistakes that Red World made in the first years of its development was to think about Red either as a national project or as a project-level project intervention you know, at a very local level. And a lot of Red energy went into little pilot projects dotted across the landscape that frankly didn't have a prayer of being successful because you can't address issues like indigenous people's tenure or you know, the illegality of commercial agriculture project scale. And I think what we all missed was the potential of performance-based finance and, and other tools at the so-called jurisdictional level. So in other words, a provincial level or in Indonesia, Kapukatan level, which is where a lot of the land use decision making takes place and where you might actually have a manageable unit. Um, one of the areas that I think the demand side policies and, and approaches and the supply chain commitments can come together with the red agenda is at that level where you could imagine putting some red money on the table to incentivize a, a Dupati to um, think about reducing the deforestation rate and at the same time having some of the supply chain actors offering longer term uh, supply uh, contracts preferential financing for companies that are, are working within those jurisdictions based on a, a reduced deforestation rate where all of the incentives would be aligned to get the public and private sector together. Um, and it's, it's at that level and the, the, the jurisdictional level that I think it's probably more promising. Great. Thanks, Francis. I think we're basically out of time there. Um, so I might take the brief luxury of one comment. I, I think that last exchange is particularly interesting for Australia, given its own rather unhappy experience with what was to be a large-scale demonstration activity. So I think we were one of the few countries that tried to do a pilot activity on a large scale, almost at a jurisdictional scale. It did not go well. And I think you know there could be some lessons there for the COD enthusiasts. I think the learning is going to go in that direction as much as it comes the other way. All right, look, please join with me in thanking Francis for You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.